This is All Saints Sunday, so it affords me every year the opportunity to talk about the saints. And uh, I want to say, since we're on a three-year cycle now, we're in year C. Uh, The readings we read, we haven't been reading very often on All Saints because there was usually one set of readings, even in the non-RCL for All Saints Day. But today we read from Daniel, from Ephesians, and Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, which in biblical scholarship is known as the Sermon on the Plain. So I'll talk a little bit about uh, the differences and why they're important. So the the question uh, a lot of people ask all the time, but particularly on All Saints Sunday, would be, what does it mean to be a saint? How do you get to be a saint? Why would you want to be a saint? Why does the church make such a big deal about the saints? What saints are we commemorating on All Saints Day? And how can I understand the importance of sanctity in my life? Which may be the most important question because it has something to do with uh, being attentive to the processes of God at work in, in you. And sometimes that means they're at work even when you don't know it. And we're going to see from the readings that, uh, I don't want to use the term generic, but certainly um, prior to Christianity and in the early church, uh, all people were thought of as saints. And I'll talk about that when we get to the letter to the Ephesians. G.K. Chesterton, uh, his father Brown Mysteries are back on PBS, a new version of the Father Brown stories. G.K. Chesterton said, uh, I should mention this, a commercial message. It's it's probably not in print. But in 1968, my mother gave me a book by W.H. Auden called A Certain World, the poet W.H. Auden, a commonplace book. And what he did in this book was people of letters uh, and probably who thought that their stuff was worthwhile sharing uh, would publish something in their career called a commonplace book. And what it was is a collection of quotations, some of their own, but mostly from other people that they had picked up over time and had a particular effect on them and wanted to preserve them so that people knew Uh, what it was, how they might be thinking, and so forth. So Auden wrote this uh, book, a commonplace book, you know, and it's stuff like a visit to a lead mine. So he described that, or then he would talk about uh, the saints, and he'd have three or four quotations by various people. And G.K. Chesterton, uh, in the entry on saints, he said, The communion of saints means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. The communion of saints refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking around. So what he means there, of course, is that we pray in the creed, or say in the creeds, and we did today, the baptismal creed is the Apostles' Creed, and it also affirms that we believe in the communion of saints. 
So that means past, present, and future, because all of us know people who are alive today who we might call saints, you know. And it doesn't always have to do with heroic behavior or a huge capacity for victimhood. There are lots of people who say, you know, Fred, he's just a saint, which means he's had to put up with God knows what, you know what I mean? All kinds of things. That's not what we mean always by sanctity. Maybe it learned, it, it has something to do, since I've been reading a bit about <coughs> Buddhism lately in a bunch, with, with uh, the cultivation of a certain detachment, the non-anxious presence that I talk about all the time. And it seems that the saints uh, have the ability to do that. Uh, Edwin Friedman said that the great saints of God were people who knew that they were dependent upon no one but God for their salvation. That they were not dependent upon other people for their salvation. And most of us get that mixed up fairly regularly. You know, sometimes we do better than other times. But learning that is very, very hard indeed. Now, in technical terms, a saint was understood to mean somebody who lived before the time, in the Bible, somebody who lived before the time of Christ, members of the new covenant in Jesus Christ, and a synonym for the faithful. And I'll say this again when I talk about Ephesians briefly, that that's how Paul understands this. He, he writes to the saints which is everybody, how he understands this. So most of us have this idea that the, the, the sanctity is somehow heroic in the sense that uh, we're able to do great things or perform miracles and so forth. Remember from the beginning of Christianity, uh, there was always the belief in sanctity. And what I'm, my main point, if you get nothing else this morning, will be that People, all people were thought of as saints and living into their sanctity instead of special people that were capable of certain kinds of things. So the origin of the cult of saints, which uh, always, that's a word that gets people all, yeah. But I mean praying to the saints, thinking about the saints who are with God, and what do we mean when we speak about that? The processes that are in place now, particularly in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, to produce saints is make your, would make your hair stand on end, right? So how did we have saints for the first thousand years of Christianity? We had them because they flowed out of the local commemorations of individuals within Christian communities throughout the Christian world who people believed led particularly exemplary lives or constituted for a great number of the people in those local communities as inspiration for them to live into their sanctity. There was no process to say, well, they cured 10 people of uh, leprosy or they did this sort of thing or they were able, like St. Joseph of Cupertino, to levitate and to fly around, you know. Padre Pio could bilocate. Some people saw him asleep at his desk 
And lo and behold, he was in some small village visiting somebody at the same time. So we, we tend to have this kind of thinking about what this all has involved. I don't want to throw cold water on all of that, by the way. I may be just foolish about these things, but one never knows. But if we're going to base sanctity on this kind of thing, we're going to have a tough road to hoe, particularly uh, in, we, we think we're in an unprecedented age of skepticism. Don't fool yourself. It's been around for a long time. So we have to say, what is it about the sanctity? It's the local people. And the saints began uh, in that way. When I was in seminary years ago now, uh, every, day, every date when we commemorated Blessed Jackson Kemper, the first missionary bishop of the Episcopal Church. Uh, our, my seminary was in the wilds of Equatorial Wisconsin. And so we, every, every time it was Blessed Jackson Kemper, he was buried in our cemetery. So we would traipse up from the chapel and we'd go to the cemetery and we'd go to his graveside and we'd say prayers uh, with Blessed Jackson Kemper. At the when the first time I was still carried away by all the panoply of the rituals of the church and so the image of about 104 black-clad seminarians in their capes walking in the snow up there with the bell tolling was compelling. I have to tell you that. So we went up and prayed for Blessed Jackson Kemper. In the Episcopal Church, uh, we celebrate the saints, and we have a, a sort of categories. The main saints are like St. Luke and St. Matthew and St. John and, you know, the saints, of, you know, St. Mary the Virgin and so forth. But we have a lot of lesser saints, and it seems as though the number <clears throat> has gotten much greater. This is the newest book of lesser feasts and fasts, although now we refer to it as holy women, holy men. Don't drop it on your foot. <laughs> when I was uh, at the general convention in 2012, uh, we passed holy women, or continued on with the holy women, holy men. And there's a whole lot of different kinds of people in here and a whole lot of things that we can commemorate. Many of the curmudgeons and very conservative individuals think that we have gone a bridge too far on this. But everybody needs to be reminded you don't have to celebrate all of these days. You can cherry pick. And I don't mean that in a cavalier sense. You can celebrate the saints that mean something to you locally or had a particular effect on uh, moving things in the culture that needed to be moved. And the other thing is some ecumenical progress in the way we understand things. We have commemorated the anniversary of the death of William Tyndall, who was a Protestant reformer in England who would have had nothing to do with the communion of saints. Nothing. He translated the Bible into English. Uh, a lot of his translation was used in the, in the production of the King James Version of the Bible. He was garroted in Antwerp by agents of Henry VIII. 
So he would hardly be someone who would be a great favorite of people in the Roman Catholic Church, or for that matter, uh, Catholic Anglicans, of which I am one. But William Tyndall was a great man. There's a wonderful biography out about him about three or four years ago about who he, he was not good dinner company. He was tough. He was just relentless. But the fact of the matter is uh, he's very important. But we also have now in the Lesser Feast and Fast John of the Cross. And we have St. Ignatius Loyola. Those are two great people. St. Teresa of Avila. Right? I don't think the little flower has yet got in, but it may be soon. Who knows? The point is, is that there is a case to be made for expanding and not contracting the celebration of the communion of saints, although there are some in the Episcopal Church who legitimately suggest that one of the things that we did as Anglican Christians early on was to pare this baby down because you began to have daily celebrations where it was a different saint and you were focusing yourself away from uh, Sunday is the day of the resurrection and perhaps other things that needed to be part of the way in which you understood, understood the church's common life as opposed to, you know, focusing on Mother Cabrini's shoes, right? I'm being silly, but there it is, you know. But there are a great many people in here now who, you know, the first... Priest in the Episcopal Church that was from the Sioux Nation. You know, 50% of the Sioux are all Episcopalians. And it was Viney Deloria's father, the man who wrote, Custer died for your sins. It was the first priest in the Episcopal Church. Indian, Native American priest. <clears throat> so there are a lot of interesting people in here. Bears just thumbing through at the very least. So let me talk briefly about remembering now the local celebration of the saints, that we began that way. Who was the first person to put together a kind of comprehensive calendar of the saints that was fairly universally observed in Western Christianity? Charlemagne. Charlemagne had a, had a deacon who was the head of his school in Aachen from York named Alcuin. And Alcuin ran the school. Remember, this is where we have the history of West, how it worked and how curricula developed over time. Alcuin ran the school. If you were a choir boy in Aachen, you had to sing the services during the day in the choir. And the services that you sang were in Latin. So between the services, you had to go to school to learn how to read and write, and to learn Latin grammar. So we called them grammar schools. Where did it come from? Well, I guess, you know, not as sensational as people thought, was it? And I bet there was as much complaining by the kids as there is these days, right? To have to go to grammar school. So let me talk a little bit about Daniel. And, well, I didn't finish. Here is... Alcuin with Charlemagne, he said, you know, king, what we ought to do is we ought to have, instead of all these in Italy, they have their saints, and then where we are, Germany, France, you know, over in England, you know, down in, uh, why don't we uh, consolidate all this and have a calendar that all Christian people can observe universally? And Charlemagne said, make it so. 
And so we get the first sacramentary where we have people using the same things. So St. Luke is, you know, all over, and the saints from Sicily are in, and the saints from England are in, and the saints from France are in, and Germany, what we now call, they're all in, St. Boniface, you know, all those people. So let's talk about the biblical exposition today of how we think about sanctity and the presence of saints and God's care for the saints, which I'm going to suggest means everybody. And that there's biblical support and authority uh, for that. So remember when I preach about Revelation, the book of Revelation, and I've said to you that I subscribe to the view uh, and I have... Uh, many supporters who are know far more than I do who believe that what is being described in the book of Revelation are events that have already occurred in history so that when they were written by the author of the Revelation they had occurred and were occurring in the Roman imperial system right so this is not a prediction of what's going to happen in the future This is a prediction of how we cope with the present reality and how God is involved in the present reality and what our part is in the present reality and flowing out of that, how does sanctity appear relationally in all of the big issues, both in terms of our personal, subjective, emotional, spiritual, and mental life But how does it occur with regard to the situation on the ground in the culture, in the way in which we interact with one another in economic terms and so forth? What is involved in that and what role do we have to play? So Daniel is writing about a concrete historical situation in this section of the book of Daniel. By the way, Daniel is one of the few places... In the Hebrew Bible, it isn't in Hebrew, it's in Aramaic. And one of the great jokes that Father Hunt used to like to play on us in Hebrew class was to ask David Brewer to open to the book of Daniel and to start to read from Daniel, you know, Hebrew, look at the Hebrew, and do it. And it was like, the letters were the same, but it was like, I don't even know what, I have no idea what this is saying. And neither did even some of the people who had learned Hebrew in college and knew it at least a little bit. There was a guy named David Seltzer in my class had this t-shirt he wore all the time that had these Hebrew characters along, along the top here. And so when I learned some Hebrew and how to sound out the letters, I looked at it and said, Shazam! <laughs> <laughs> so he'd have you read, and he was really amused when you just got all... Yeah. Daniel, uh, the, 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 the class of writing Daniel is, is called apocalyptic, like Re- Revelation, the book of Revelation. So he's talking about cataclysmic events that occurred, and you can pin it down by reading the text if you know the history. The symbolism that he's talking about are events that occurred between 164, 167 and 164 BCE. All right, about 167 years before the birth of Jesus. And it's about something that happened in Jerusalem and its precincts, which was the invasion 
by a Seleucid king named Antiochus Epiphanes, who came down from the, in the Hellenistic world and conquered Jerusalem, cleaned out the temple, and put his statue in the temple. To many, that meant the end. The profaning of the temple in Jerusalem was the end. And the group that was the most chuffed about this fact were the Essenes, who went to Qumran outside of Jerusalem and wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls and lived in the caves at Qumran until 68 AD. And we're talking about how we're not going to the temple anymore. It is beyond fixing until the Messiah comes, who can come, clean it out, reconsecrate it, so to speak, and get us back on the track. But until then, we're not going. And so they're writing a whole lot of justifications for why you don't need to go there anymore and sacrifice animals. You can do this a different way until the time comes when things are restored. So Daniel is concerned about saying, how do we cope during this period? What are we going to do? And as it turns out, God has abiding love and care for the saints, for everybody, and is grateful, and is sending now his comfort and concern, even in the midst of adversity. We're not waiting to go somewhere else. We're not waiting till it's all over and then it'll be fine. We're part of this whole deal. And what God is saying in Daniel's prophetic sense is that you and I are part of bringing that to some completion and moving to a healthier condition than we're in now. So we're involved in this process. It isn't waiting for some Star Trek moment where it's all going to like this and we're going to be fixed. And so Daniel is reassuring in his apocalyptic imagery, that you will be comforted and find the resources you need in the midst of great tribulation and difficulty that you are experiencing at the present moment. So it causes people who read it to reflect on their own life and to say, have there ever been any circumstances in my life where I completely was at a loss as to how I was going to get out of this or move to a better place emotionally, spiritually, and mentally, and that somehow I, I found the, the means to do this. And the only answer I could come up with in the course of this was is that God was with me in this process. You know, not sort of as a continuous, oh, yes, I'm seeing, I'm seeing, I'm seeing, but a beginning to see, well, now this is something that I've learned by that, by that process told you this many times, Edwin Friedman, I keep talking about him, one of my great heroes, said, I've been a licensed marriage and family therapist for 35 years. I used to be all concerned when I talked to people and I'd interview them about what's happened in their life, all of the difficulties that occurred that got them all upside down and beside themselves and didn't know what to do. People have marched from one horror to the next. Listening to these stories would make your hair stand on end. And anybody who's been in the helping professions knows that to be true. So he said, I don't care about that anymore. I'm not trying to figure out what your issues are. I'm trying to figure out how you got through it. How come you're still here? And what did you learn? And can you share this with anybody? 
So when you read the apocalyptic literature and you think about Daniel and uh, the, the book of Revelation, that's what's at the bottom of this. And remember, the people who were alive then who heard or read this for the first time understood it all. It wasn't in any special code for them. It may be baffling to us, and some people thought we needed Hal Lindsey to write the late great planet Earth to figure out what was in the book of Revelation, but I can assure you that the people who heard it knew what all those symbols meant, knew exactly what they were referring to. It was no big mystery. So in Ephesians today, we have praise from Paul uh, to the saints and the purpose of this reading being included in All Saints Day is, a term, is to be understood as a term that is not exclusionary or sectarian. So you and I are part of a uh, faith tradition that has saints. It means we're all saints. So who do we commemorate on All Saints Day? Mostly, we commemorate the saints that are not on the Christian calendar. We commemorate the saints that all of us know that are of special importance to us because they had a sanctifying influence on the way we behaved as human beings. You know, some of these people are only known to you. Some people who said some things that made you change direction that made you see more fully that you were on the right track, that made you see more fully that you were valued and important, and gave you some inspiration when you learned some things to share that with other people. And Paul is praising the saints in Ephesus uh, for that purpose. It is to be, the, the idea of sanctity is to be uh, applied to all Christians. And finally, in Luke's gospel, we have now the Sermon on the Plain. Matthew, which is the one we read from the most, is it part of something called the Sermon on the Mount, which lasts for a couple of, it's, it's long. Matthew has Jesus on a mountain, delivering the Beatitudes, plus other teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, because Matthew believes Jesus to be the new Moses. So he is delivering it from the mountain just as the law came with Moses from the mountain. And Luke is on a flat place, says in the Greek text, the plain with all of us. Not from a height, but here we are together. And Luke is different. Some biblical scholars, I think they may be right, believe this is the older of the traditions. So the oral tradition that becomes written down comes from more than one source. So Matthew is reporting a tradition where Jesus, and for his own purposes, wants Jesus to be the new Moses. So his gospel has five parts, just like the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And Luke is concerned about Jesus in terms of his preaching about being on the side of the deprived. And this story comes just after we read a couple of weeks ago the story of Jesus in his hometown synagogue reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah about the liberation of the captive, the giving of sight to the blind, the, the hungry being fed, 
that there being a, a major change in the way human beings deal with one another. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, he's speaking about the four states of blessedness, not as many as Matthew talks about, and four woes. Woe to those who da-da. Woe to those who da-da. And the reason he's mentioning that is, is that if two and two gets put together reading the gospel, you'll discover that because Jesus has allied himself with the deprived, he is also saying, this is not something we have to wait for to be made right. Because you have heard through me that we together are going to undertake the, diff the transformation of the world in terms of the way people love one another, forgive one another, accept one another, assist one another, and to right this ship. A few weeks ago, I said this at the uh, 35th anniversary of the Santa, 30th anniversary of Santa Maria Urban Ministry. There's two ways to look at the way you help people. Most people are uh, most comfortable with what is known as palliative care. Palliative care is good and necessary many times. We have to use it. But palliative care means bringing symptom relief without dealing with the underlying causes. So that's necessary. Transformative care is saying that what we need to do is to reorient the way in which all this, the direction all of this is going. So it's not, oh, palliative, transformative, which one should I pick? It's both of them. And Jesus is saying to people, you don't have to wait till you die and go to God to experience what I'm telling you are the promises of God. You're part of the process of making it so. You have a role to play. Everything you do in big and small ways is valued by God. And when you understand that and act on it, you are living into your sanctity. So if I were to ask the question, how am I making progress in this deal? One of the ways you could use to check is to open the prayer book and read the baptismal uh, covenant that we just reaffirmed today in the liturgy. The other way is to say, how have you experienced or felt or understood the uh, fruits of the Holy Spirit? Love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Are you better at these things than you were before? Do you have occasional moments where you're just knocking on all eights? And then you may step back. It happens. But that you understand that kind of transformative work that is taking place in you. Eastern Orthodox Christians, when they talk about sanctity or they talk about everybody being a saint, they call the process of understanding the work of the Holy Spirit and feeling some transformation in your life, personally and relationally, they call this process, we call it deification in English. In Greek, it's called theosis, which means that as we live, we become less unlike God. We, through doing these things, participate in God's holiness and eternity. That's big stuff. You know, it's a privilege to preach this. 
because it's important. So this week, give thanks for being uh, a saint of God. Uh, Ask God to help you perceive uh, your moments of sanctity more clearly than you may think you have expressed them, because that's always the case. And remember always that God needs you uh, to fulfill his purposes for the cosmos. Amen.